Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast from the Public Policy Forum. We focus on the ripples, waves, and tsunamis radiating from this extraordinary health and economic crisis and what can be done about them. Policy Speaking is hosted by Edward Greenspan, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum and former Editor-in-Chief of The Globe and Mail. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or head over to ppforum.ca where you can also find PPF's research and writings. Enjoy the show. Good afternoon. I'm Edward Greenspan, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum. Today, I'm pleased to be joined on Policy Speaking by Peter Lowen. Peter is Professor of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto, and he's also Director of the Politics, Elections, and Representation Lab, Pearl. The focus of his academic interest is in how politicians can make better decisions, how citizens can make better choices, and how governments can address the disruption of technology and harness its opportunities, which I think we're seeing a lot of now. Previously, Peter served as director at the UT's School of Public Policy and Governance and the Center for the Study of the United States. Peter also spent some time last year as a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, and has also held visiting positions at Princeton and the University of Melbourne. Peter is also, importantly, one of our PPF fellows and has done some fascinating work with the Public Policy Forum on attitudes and anxieties about the future of work and how voters viewed the information they received during the 2019 federal election campaign. So you are a busy man. Welcome to Policy Speaking, Peter. Thanks very much. Just a fair warning at the start. I'm also a dad, so if two kids come busting. Okay, we might have one of those South Korean experiences behind you. We'll see. Yeah. Okay, Peter, why don't we start with you know some research that you've been doing during the course of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, both internationally and here in Canada. And you know people are responding to these surveys. You're gaining insights comparatively and domestically. So why don't we just start very generally and tell us a little bit about this research project and what you're seeing. Yeah, so there's two real big components to what's going on right now in my lab. One is that we're surveying about 2,500 Canadians a week. We started that a month ago. We're in our fourth week now, and now we're starting to re-interview some of those people. So we're seeing some of the things that they're, they're changing, their views about or behavior that they're changing. But long story short, we're interviewing these, these folks, doing it online, and asking them questions about their views of COVID, what actions or what behaviors they're changing in response to COVID, what the effects of it are on their economics and on their, on their pocketbooks. Um, we're asking them a lot of questions about the responsibility or attribution of responsibility. Who's responsible for this? How well are governments doing in handling it? And finally, we're asking them questions about their facts and how much they know about it. So we do that kind of every week, and we're doing that every week for as long as we can fund it, basically. Uh, and I think we'll be in the field six, seven, eight months, so through this whole thing, at least through the first two waves of it. And then we also just every week add in some other things we want to learn. So we're learning some particular things along the way. So let me just give you a kind of a high level of where things are. And I'll tell you another thing we, we were doing internationally. Oh, the second piece, of course, is what we're doing is, along with our colleagues at, uh, at the Max Bell School at McGill, we're really tracking everything that's being said online about COVID in Canada. So we're trying to kind of combine survey data with data about the, the broader media ecosystem. Right, and that's a continuation of some work you were doing during the election campaign yeah. uh, in partnership with the Public Policy Forum. Yeah, yeah, it was really kind of energized by PPF and underwritten by PPF, and now we're kind of applying it here. So it's, it's really great um, for us. 
So what are you finding? Well, that's that's the key thing. So this is a good moment for governments in a lot of respects. I mean, I don't think anybody wants to be sitting in the chair right now. It's a tough one if you're a first minister. But citizens are approving of what their governments are doing. So across the board, even now, four weeks into this thing, four weeks into our surveying, two months into this pandemic, in essence, the majority of people approve of the federal government's handling of the, the COVID issue. The majority of people approve of their provincial government's handling and the majority approve of their local government's handling of it. And that's across the board. Now, there are variations. People who voted conservative in the last election or people who identify as conservative voters are less supportive of the federal government, but the majority still approve or strongly approve of the federal government's handling of this issue. So I think what you've got is a couple of interesting things going on. We have a paper that came out uh, last week on this. There's journals now taking rapid submissions. We've been spinning a lot of papers. And if you look at what politicians are talking about, every federal MP, every MP in Canada is talking about COVID more than any other issue. And all of them are in essential agreement with the broad course of action that's been taken by the federal government. Now, there's starting to be some cracks there. That's healthy. But there's overwhelming prioritization of the issue by politicians. And there's overwhelming approval of the general direction that the government's taking. That is some combination of lockdown, increased resource to health, and then an economic backstop. So at the elite level, there's just a lot of consensus. And at the level of voters, we just see a lot of consensus in terms of what kind of knowledge they've got about about COVID. There's not measurably varying degrees of misinformation about COVID. We don't see varying degrees in terms of their compliance with social distancing. If you ask them a whole battery of things you can do to socially distance. And we don't see variation in how severe they think COVID is. So this is a really interesting thing. So many things in our politics are very politicized and really increasingly are polarized around partisan identity. But on this one, there's more consensus across the board than I've seen on any issue in all the data that I've ever, I've ever combed through. Well, unpack that for a moment for me, if you will, because during the recent election campaign, we saw a lot of negative narrative going around and we saw an attempt to tar one another's leaders. So on the one hand, you're saying that people, regardless of party affiliation, are seeing the issue in a similar way and are generally supportive of government response, but there is a differentiation with conservative voters, you're saying. So is polarization still there or has polarization been tamped down? Well, it's a good question, right? Because what's the degree of approval that the federal government should have at this point in time? I mean, I actually don't know if we could somehow objectively benchmark the federal government's performance. Should they get 100% grade across the board? Probably not. There have been some mistakes that have been made along the way. And there'll be lots of time to unpack those at at another date. And that'll be a political process as well as I think a public one. And that's that's well and good. But I don't think their performance has been perfect. So how much approval should they have, right? The question for me is question around the politics of it. And And I don't mean that in a derisive sense, we should actually have politics going on here, despite some people's sense that we can just spend parliament for a period of time or something. But hopefully what's going to happen with the politics of it is politicians are going to start to articulate the path going forward and give some citizens a sense of the trade-offs that those politicians are asking them to make with some clear benchmarks about how they can do it. I mean, up to this point, with the exception of Scott Moe today, we don't really have clear guideposts about what the unlocking of the economy will look like and what might, what might trigger that. We don't have clear guideposts about what the federal government's willing to do on tracing and testing, quarantining. Those are things that I think sooner than later, governments are going to have to start articulating. And frankly, it is the job. It is the job of federal of opposition politicians. It is the job of people in the media. And it is the job of those of us who watch this stuff to articulate some alternatives to whatever plan is put up by the government. 
to stack them up against one another and to start making the case that one is better than the other. I think we're going to get there. And I hope that when we get there, people are sensible about this because there really are actually multiple ways that we can go forward, all of them within the broad bounds of scientific advice, all of them rooted in good economic policy, rooted in reasonable politics. There are different ways that we can go. So hopefully we'll get to that point. For now, I think voters are largely just approving what the government's doing because, frankly, if you've ever filed a income tax return where you're getting money back, you wait a long time for that check to arrive in the mail. And the federal government has pushed out millions of checks and millions of deposits, in fact, to Canadians in a very short order and given them a fundamental sense that they are backstopped by their government in a real time of crisis. So it's not surprising that people would be supportive of the government. I'll just say one more thing, just to give it international. Unless you want to pop in, I've got one more international piece of context to give you, which is that colleagues and I happen to have been surveying people in Europe in 15 countries over March. And we asked them, we're asking them lots of standard questions. How much do you trust your government? Who are you going to vote for in the next election? Do you think democracy is a good system, et cetera, et cetera. In eight of those countries, a lockdown occurred in the middle of our surveying period. So when we compare the views of people before and after the lockdown, surveyed just before and just after, you see the people who are surveyed after, they've got more support for incumbents. They trust their governments more, and they support democracy more. So this is a global thing that's going on and that people I think are seeing that governments can actually do something, can rally people around a common purpose, can backstop them economically. Which of those things is actually driving increased support for governments remains to be unpacked, but there is something going on where people are more supportive of governments than they were six months ago, for example. Yeah, so I wanna come back to a couple of those points, but but let's just stick with the snapshot in some ways of, of trust at the moment too. These aren't mutually exclusive choices I'm gonna give you, but to what extent do you think this is being driven by just government matters. When the chips are down, government really matters much more to me. To what extent is it that government is more visible now than it normally is? To what extent is it that people like strong and decisive leadership and they often don't get it? To what extent is it that partisan sniping is down? Let me add one other in there, which is expertise. Times like this, people might want to turn more towards expertise. And some polling has shown that public health officials are riding very high in terms of public trust. Yes. So what are the main driving factors of the surge in trust? So we find, by the way, in our data that approval of public health officials is the highest among all the actors that we ask people about. Our findings are consistent with that. That's just, that's just an excellent, it's an excellent question. And it's difficult to unpack, frankly, but I think there are some things we can use to get something of an answer. So this isn't really about partisanship, right? Or about ideology, actually. It's not about one sort of ideology triumphing over others because Doug Ford, who remains kind of a get it done, common sense conservative, who thinks government can do some stuff but should be in the business of just serving people better, that's always kind of been his shtick. Not a shtick, that's actually been his belief system. He's doing as well as Justin Trudeau is, right? So it's not that it's not overwhelmingly that people have come to the view that in any and in all circumstances, government is the answer to a problem. It suggests to me that it's not ideological. I think it is partially about public leadership. I think there's a lesson here for politicians, right? And there's, a, there's an immediate lesson, actually, for the next four weeks, which is that if you routinely and clearly articulate to people what you're asking of them, and you ask them to do it at a higher level, you ask them to do it for some higher purpose, they will come on board, at least for some period of time. So to me, that's a lesson in here for, for politicians, and it's actually an important lesson going forward. So I don't think it's ideology yet. I think it's partially leadership. I think it's partially that people are actually genuinely scared by this issue. And it's a funny issue, right? Because we can't see the virus, obviously. 
it's hard to kind of understand epidemiological models, but people intuitively get what it's like to get sick. We're pretty deeply rooted in our biology. It pretty deeply rooted in our biology is a sense of a fear of pathogens and a, and a desire to stay well. So I think a lot of this actually hits people at a pretty visceral level. And they've got politicians giving them clear actions on what they ought to do. So I think it's pretty base there. And the expertise happens to line up with that. On the policy side, there's still a lot of things to shake out. So a lot of people are getting checks now. It's helping carry them over. But we have not seen the end of the, of the devastation to small businesses if this thing continues. We've not seen the end to employers who have been doing their level best to keep people on, but frankly, aren't going to be able to do that forever. So there's more pain to come. There's more pain to come. And I think at that point, that'll give us more hints about exactly where people's approval is coming from. There was a 2013 OECD report that was really a a survey four or five years later on the impacts of the global economic crisis. And it argued that trust and competence were codependent. Basically, need to have both to have either. You can't implement policies well without a good reservoir of trust. You can't build a good reservoir of trust without implementing policies well, if you will. So how much are the rising trust numbers and perhaps perpetuating this, do you think is connected to a perception that people may have that governments seem to know what they're doing? Oh, I think they've got governments who are able to articulate. So here's kind of a trifecta, right? They're able to articulate what the problem is. They're able to articulate what some solutions are and they're able to support people in pursuing those solutions. I mean, that's a pretty good combination if you're a government trying to do public communication and policy communication. Now, what I'd say about this, by the way, is that there is this moment of trust right now where people believe government can do things. And I, I actually think the government's getting behind, which is say it's falling behind where the public is and what they want them, what they want them to do. I'll give you an example. We, we teamed up with Jack Lucas at the University of Calgary in the last couple of weeks. He runs kind of a regular barometer of Canadian municipal politicians. And we surveyed 500 of them, varying levels of city size. All of them are elected officials in their cities. And we asked them, here are the kind of the economic costs coming down the pipe for COVID. What things would you be willing to support in terms of policy actions to stave off these economic costs? And one of the options was allow more deaths. No one supports that. We went out there on this one, okay? So we asked them, would you support military patrolling the streets to enforce social distancing? Would you support the widespread use of temperature scanners, which is a normal technology in other countries, to find people who are overheating, basically, and need to be quarantined? And would you support using tracking and tracing technologies on cell phones to basically get testing and tracing up? And then we surveyed people, regular citizens. And when you match people to their politicians, the people want politicians to take these actions more than politicians are willing willing for them to take, particularly on temperature scanning, but especially on testing and tracing. And I think that we're kind of... I think right now, a lot of politicians are wondering how we're going to use mobile phone technology to do testing and tracing and to figure out where there is potential infection spreading for COVID. And I just suspect that if government was willing to make a case to people very strongly about why they should do this and why this is key to actually unlocking the economy and getting people back out onto the streets, even in a limited way, they could build huge support here. Problem, solution, and support them in doing it. What is trust really about? I mean, trust makes for better societies, obviously, but it means, I think, that it's much easier to earn the consent of the governed rather than having to act coercively. Yes. And I think that's built on the foundation of trust, right? Yes, yes. So consent's an interesting thing, right? So I was having a conversation with some colleagues yesterday about this, right? And should we ask people what they're comfortable with or should we ask them what they're willing to do? And government's asking people to do a lot of stuff that's uncomfortable. And I think that we have to continually acknowledge that 
people are making huge sacrifices. I'm a university professor, still getting paid. Kids are at home. It's tough, whatever, right? It's, a, it's, it's not all that different, right? Except that we're spending more time with our kids. But there are other people out there, boy, who are doing this where the paychecks are drying up. There's a lot of other stresses on them. Governments ask people to do big things. It didn't ask them if they were comfortable with it. It asked them if they were willing to do it. So the next set of conversations are, you know, what sacrifices are people willing to make and what trade-offs are they willing to make uh, in order to kind of unlock the economy? And this is just kind of a summary. My summary view of this in some sense, Ed, is that this is a moment where government, because it's got high levels of trust, because it's got people singularly focused on some issue, this is the moment where you take the political capital that you've built up and you spend it down to try to build support for some other big set of actions you're going to take. But in articulating what those actions are and giving the reasons, you build your political capital back up. So, so I think our politicians are a little gun-shy on this, actually. And this is where the next step is going to be a bit harder. And I think that's global, frankly. Like, if you look at where countries are in terms of their policy mixes, we've been doing some work on this. Every country is kind of in the same policy equilibrium right now, trying to throw as much money into healthcare as possible, trying to lock everything down, and then trying to backstop the economy. Only South Korea has really rolled back on closures. Other countries are starting to do it now, but most countries have been stuck here for four or five weeks. So the question is, what's the next thing they're going to do? I wonder, Peter, about the idea of paying down capital and, and replenishing it. And we've had phenomenal deficits of trust uh, that have hobbled governments the world over. Over recent years, there was one finding after the election in a poll by the former Enveronics Communications where they found that trust in Parliament, quote, to do what is right for Canada, Canadians, and our society, stood at only 42%. Pretty extraordinarily uh, bleak picture that is. But I wonder if what you're saying is if people perceive that government is doing the right thing, even if it's tough, even if it's impinging on them in some way, that they feel that government is responsive and it's a matter of building capital in some ways rather than uh, playing it down. And, and I think in this, Peter, about the work you did for us last year, about this time on the future of work and what you found around populism and job anxiety. And what you found is that people really wanted activist government. And if they didn't get government that understood them, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. they were going to populist solutions. But that's not where they wanted to start. Maybe you could talk about that for a moment. You've heard me say this, I think, multiple times. But the, the question with populists is, are they wrong about the problems or are they wrong about the solutions? And I think for the most part, populists are wrong about the solutions. But they're generally not wrong, with the exception of immigration as a problem. They're generally not wrong. In, in the things that they point out as being problems. Rising inequality, elite capture of government, regulatory capture of, of government, widening chasms between rural areas and urban areas, between the center and the periphery, et cetera, et cetera. Solutions are always right, rarely are, but the, the problems are, are correct. People are willing to support governments who, once they've correctly identified a problem, put forward solutions before them, which are some mix of government solutions and community-based solutions. And I think this is a great example of it. We all agree on what the problem is here. We're being attacked by a virus, which is indifferent to us. It's existential and it's creepy and it's the stuff of novels, but it's real. So we all agree on that problem. And I think everyone agrees that when government articulates the role it's going to play reasonably, they'll follow along. So there's a role for government there. Something I've been thinking a lot about in this, right, is, is you kind of wonder, what's the future of conservative parties in this, for example, right? And and I think that you just, you look at the Conservative Party of Canada, and I'm not a partisan, and I've got a lot of friends in that party, And but boy, like, not a great time to be running a leadership race in the first case. And everybody knows we'd be pretty optimal if we had a permanent leader in there who was ready to articulate a difference and had kind of a reasonable 
set of positions. But if you were a conservative politician today thinking about the lessons you learned from this, the one thing you'd run up the flagpole and you'd wave as high as you could is, look, this thing is not working just because government's doing its job. It's working because citizens are working together, right? Because people in their communities are taking care of one another. People are looking out for their neighbor and looking out for the family members. They're doing things for the benefit of others because they're all part of a community. Conservatives used to talk in, in ways like that, and, and that used to infuse the language of certain strains of conservatism. And I think it's a good one for parties of the center right to capture again. And for them to start to articulate, and articulate it politically, and do the politics of this, but articulate how community-based solutions, where we're looking out for one another, trying to save our small businesses, trying to make sure the local economies are able to thrive, are key to solving this to this problem in the long term, not just government directives and public health directives. So kind of to bring it all back to your to your initial point, there's a big problem here that we all agree on. Government's articulating the solution, but this is this is one of the first policy problems. This is one of the biggest, let me find the best way to phrase this. This is a policy problem where we've required more active citizen buy-in to make this work than any policy problem I can think of in my lifetime. This is one where it doesn't work for government just to take your taxes and then redistribute them, right? You actually, everyone has to be pulling together here and complying. So it's different in that sense that not only is there a relationship between government and citizens that's being strengthened right now, but the relationship between citizens, our sense of common bonds and common purpose and obligation to one another, and our obligation to anonymous people that we don't know is stronger now than it has been. And do your numbers show that? Do your numbers show a social solidarity as well? They do. And what I'll say is one of the worrying things about it, just for what it's worth, is that when we make people think about the economic cost of this in the long term, and we ask them to estimate whether they think other people are going to continue to comply with social distancing, people have some doubts. They have some doubts. And if they think that others are not going to comply with social distancing, they themselves anticipate that they won't be as likely to comply with it later on. So this is a huge collective action problem. It's actually a, it's an end person public goods game if you're an economist, but it's a big, it's a big coordination problem. And we have to worry about those expectations, right? So we have to, I think, talk about the community level of this more than we have been to make it clear that this is not only a vertical thing with governments, but it's a horizontal thing across people. Yeah, it's interesting. I think one of the sets of issues that governments aren't ready to to tackle because they're in the middle of, of two emergencies, a health one and an economic one, yes. is how are we ultimately going to pay for this and how is that going to fall yes on people over time? Is it, you know, is there going to be intergenerational lack of equity in how it falls? We're going to start to do some work under a project we call Rebuild Canada on these questions. And, you know, these are second order questions, but we're going to be living with them for a decade or more, I'm sure. Yeah, they're fundamental. I mean, you're right in your intuitions that I think that the, one of the underlying, underlying policy challenges for us in the medium term and in the long term is intergenerational equity and burdens. And as obviously the popular, as demographics change, we become older and older as population that gets even more, that gets more and more complicated. I think there's two interesting things going on here. I mean, we are, we are loading up on debt right now at a low interest rate, but boy, are we loading up on it to deal with this thing. We've got the firepower to do it and it's, it'd be worse not to do it, but boy, we're loading up. So you're right. We've got to talk about how that's going to get paid and who's going to, who's going to pay for it. But the other piece of it is, and this is the thing, thing that I think is this part of the community bit of it that's going to come out of this is that this is, I think, going to spur a rethink about how we treat our elderly and how we, how we kind of honor our elders and how we, how we put them into care. 
because boy, if you've got an elderly parent or a grandparent who's in an old age home right now, and I don't, you know, I had grandparents there just years ago in the last decade, and this is ravaging places, right? And we all want to care for our elders, but it's a busy world. So rethinking how we how we honor our elders and how we how we take care of our parents, I think, is, is something that's going to come out of this at the level of government, but also at the level of community. So I think there are interesting tensions, right? That just the fundamental macroeconomics of it and the microeconomics of it are that this thing is going to inflame intergenerational pressures, right? It's going to, it's going to make it harder for young people going forward because they're going to be carrying more debt. And that can flame resentment. And at the same time, this thing is reminding us that at a very human level, we've not done well or not, not done right by older Canadians who we put in institutions. Yeah, there's no doubt it's going to have a long tail and a very important long tail. And generational is one of the aspects of it. Interregional is, you know, some parts of this country are come out in worse shape than other parts. They'll probably be, you know, revisiting of fiscal federalism issues. There'll be a revisiting of future of work issues. We're watching the geopolitics of the world exacerbated. I don't know if it's moving in new directions, but the decouplings between China and the United States that we've seen has just, you know, seems to be widening under these pressures. So I think there will be a very long tail. I want to just go back to the research as we, we get near the end here, particularly the international comparative elements of it. So I think you see some countries that have perhaps not been doing as well or perceived to be doing as well, and where trust and confidence is not as high. And then you have some countries where they have you know, seem to have been done exceptionally well. Perhaps you may take an example of one of each and just tell us what we learned from those lessons. Yeah, I mean, there's always a temptation to try to learn from the American case, but it, but it is it is exceptional in this in this regard, right? That I think the American case is really one where where partisanship is really it's a combination of everything: partisanship run amok, weak public administration, any competent public administration through the top two or three levels of bureaucracy. In the, in, the, in the federal government of the United States. And then you have kind of hyper-partisanship at the level of citizens, right? So there's a, a colleague at the University of Toronto have a working paper out that shows that people's behavioral responses to requests by their governors to, to, to practice social distancing are conditioned by their partisanship. So Democrats are practicing less social distancing when a Republican governor asks them to do it and vice versa. Like this is really... This is really unhealthy. Having said all that, let's not use let's not use the American example. I think New Zealand is a country that has done this very well. Now it helps that they're a small country, that they're an island. But boy, if you were looking for a politician today who knows how to communicate, Jacinda Ardern is, I think, one of the two or three best politicians in the world right now at articulating political goals and pulling people behind them. She's the real deal in terms of building up and spending political capital. So the New Zealand case has, they have a whole bunch of things that favor them naturally. And being an island really helps. And having a good, actually, public administration helps. But it couldn't have been done without the, without the politics of it. On the other side of it, it pains me to say it, but you'd have a hard time in the OECD choosing a country that's handled this worse than Britain. Italy obviously got nailed by this thing, and they handled it worse in objectives in some ways, but they got it earlier on. Britain should learn its lessons by now. And I don't want to be unfairly difficult or hard on the British government because London is a center of the world and, and that brings all sorts of challenges with it. But if our government was two weeks late, theirs was four and a half weeks late. And you combine that with a political system at the top, which is just unserious right now, which just doesn't have people, politicians who are taking seriously the job of actually doing the job 16 hours a day, for example, right? And, and the Conservative Party has just been so roiled by internal faction and the Labour Party's just been been adrift. I mean, now it's a bit better, but but, but they've just been adrift, basically, in irrelevant four or five years. Yeah. So I think you've got a combination there of, of just tough external exogenous conditions, international country, right next to Europe, lots of people coming and going. 
but a big failure of political leadership. Let me just ask you a final question, and that's, is this something that can be perpetuated? Is it realistic to perpetuate these levels of trust or, or to have, you know, everybody talks about a new normal, to create a new normal and build on the momentum that we have? And what would that take? I don't think it is. And I don't think it would be healthy, actually, in some respect. Like, what's the counterfactual, right? I mean, do we do we want to have a politics which is motivated by emergency and motivated basically by pandemics of different sorts, right? Where effectively... We're asking for, for governments to have emergency powers all the time and for people to, unless they've got great reason to not go along with the consensus. I think that takes a lot of energy, actually. I think that's healthy in, in, in the long term. I mean, what I would equate it to is that in your family life, you've had crisis or you've had difficulty, right? And many of us have, and you've had that sense of pulling together as a family and getting something done. The reason why you can look back on that positively is because you're out of it. And because it don't, I frankly would rather return to the days where we're arguing about marginal tax rates than I would wondering how long the federal government can push out $100 billion every six weeks to save the economy and wondering whether my parents are going to be okay. Like, I'd rather, I'd rather get to that place. Now, there, maybe there's a middle ground where, where politicians realize that if they identify problems and identify solutions and give people a path from problem to solution, they can do better. And I think that would be desirable. Yeah. I wouldn't mind on your marginal tax rate question to return to a world where we can have good, strong, substantive debate with yes. different points of view yes. on those kinds of questions rather than, uh, you know, rather than gamesmanship. I mean, think about the climate change debate in our country, right? I mean, you've got parties, you've got parties disagreeing over apparently fundamental plans where the projected output from those plans are, are exceedingly marginal in a, global, in a global sense. It's mostly theater. Right. So, you know, maybe on the big issues that actually are coming down here, what we're going to get is politicians who are going to feel a little bit more brave to really go out and ask more of people because they can articulate the problem and articulate the solution. But, you know, I mean, give or take, um, I would rather I would rather take the uh, uh, the scenario where we return to a bit more a bit more normal. But, you know, it's gonna be a while till we get there. So. Okay, so I want to thank you so much for this part of the discussion, Peter. I'm going to I'm going to uh, turn it over to the audience for a few questions, and I'm glad you're going to uh, stay with us uh, uh, for that. And uh, one of our policy leads, Katie Davy, has been collecting uh, the questions. So, Katie, I'm turning it over to you. Perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, let me first start off by saying that I really deeply enjoyed this conversation. Um, as somebody from New Brunswick, I particularly appreciated the focus on inter-regional and intergenerational, and I look forward to that conversation continuing to occur. I don't think it's a surprise that we're on kind of a webinar and the questions seem to be focused a little bit around the digital space. So I'm first going to put this question from Kate to you. She says, it would be interesting to hear about the move towards digital democracy, politics happening remotely, online voting, the ability to ensure communal decision-making can happen from remote locations. So put that out to see if you've got any thoughts on that. It's a great question. Peter. My bias, just for what it's worth at, at, the, at the smallest level, is, is towards in-person voting. I just think we've got a pretty simple uh, election administration in Canada I really like that it's local and that you trudge down to your church and uh, your neighborhood church and you go through their school and you go through the door and there's eight other people there and you cast your ballot and you and you walk home having done your done your democratic duty. You know, we could get to the place where all voting is online and it's secure. I just have a feeling that the grass is greener on the other side of the septic tank and that it's a it's not a nice walk to walk to get there. And I think that frankly, we could actually administer a federal election at the level of voting 
while practicing social distancing. We just don't, we have so many polling places per person in Canada compared to the United States, for example, and we don't have all the shenanigans around proving one's identity and all the stuff that delays voting in the US that I think we can do it with, with, with social distancing. And I hope that we will. There's a bigger question there though, which is a very good one about what large scale distancing looks like and what communal decision-making looks like. And I think the last, I, I frankly think that the last week of news around our parliament has done it a disservice to our common understanding of what parliament does and how parliament operates. And look, question period is theater. There's no, there's no doubt about it. And I think that theater has a place in politics. I mean, if theater didn't have a place in politics, we wouldn't like how dramatic some of our leaders sound when they read speeches, for example, right? We would just let them read them in a monotone voice. People like show. And I think it's an important part of politics because we're trying to inspire people and bring them to a vision. But a lot of what goes on in Parliament, if, if you endure through the, the floor feed from the House of Commons for the whole day, is politicians substantively questioning each other on policy. When bills are debated in the House of Commons outside of the, of the theater of question period, these are substantive conversations. And if people have the time, and I would encourage them to read a Hanser or go back and watch some of these videos on any bill. There are people there who have expertise and they're asking each other questions. Now, can that be replaced in a, uh, outside of the confines of Parliament? It probably can be, actually. It probably can be. Now, does that recommend that we do everything online or does it recommend that we decentralize Parliament and have more committees going and meeting in front of people or, or, or whatever it is? I think this is all a good time to explore different ways of deliberating together. But if we want to be really ambitious about it, if we want to be really ambitious about it, let's, let's not worry about the parliament part. Let's let parliament keep doing its thing. People are going to return to parliament. They're building a nice new building. They're going to return. We're going to let all 330 people sit together eventually. We're going to be okay. But let's figure out how we use this new comfort we have with digital technology, for example, to talk to one another, right? So like, let's, let's figure out how we actually deliberate across the country. How we, for example, match up people from different parts of the country who've never met to have a conversation about politics, right? Or how we get people in a small city in northern New Brunswick talking with people in a small city in northern British Columbia about the challenges that they're, that they're facing. I think we're kind of recognizing now that we can reach out in different ways than we've reached out before. And we should be systematic about trying a whole bunch of new things over the course of this and afterwards to take advantage of this technology. Let me just weigh in on that one second. I agree with everything that you said, and I think that there's an opportunity here to to bring a kind of maturation to the new digital public square. So the new digital public square has been a place so far where people do talk to each other. They tend to talk to each other more tribally than not, and it, and there's a lot of pollution that goes into that discussion. I think you know we really do have a moment here where we can think about what that looks like and how we use it uh, to enhance civic purpose rather than not. At the same time, I think there's an economic element that's also very promising here, and it's important that you know the, we, we talk talk about inclusion and exclusion in our economy as we should and, and our society, but geographic exclusion is a pretty important uh, part of the equation too, Absolutely. and particularly smaller and remote uh, communities in the country. And as the economy, as digital provides, as well as new political commons, a, a kind of new economic marketplace, and one that's easier actually to export, you don't have to be near market, and you don't really have to go through Donald Trump's border blockages, then that should be accessible 
physical therapy one, and that would require some, you know, greater investment by both corporations and by uh, and by government in a digital infrastructure for all. That actually leads very nicely into another question we've been asked, which is, please talk a bit more about the role of social media. Has it made government's ability to respond simpler or more complicated? And I guess I'll just add to that: Has it improved government's ability to reach citizens, or? Or had the opposite effect. That's definitely a question for Peter. I know. Oh, what I will say is, is this: is is it one thing we've been tracking in our in our weekly study is people's degrees of misinformation about COVID, and there's not that much misinformation out there, by the way, at the level of beliefs. Thank goodness. But to the degree that people are higher in misinformation than others, those who get their news principally off social media are much more likely to have higher rates of misinformation than those who are getting their news through traditional means. That may sound very, very obvious, right? But it's it's good to know it. It's part 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 of the reason why we do why we do why we do research. But it really is one of the challenges for government right now is that communication is no longer mediated through the big players who you can trust to be reasonable and factual, you know, channels of of information. However, however they however they scrutinize it, they're going to give you facts. Now people are able to get uh, incredible amounts of information off of uh, social media, and look, I mean. We want Facebook and Twitter to be good citizens, and these are incredible technologies, and I think we're the better for them. But their capacity, even now, to keep up with the flow of of misinformation just isn't there. So the difficulty here isn't really, I think, the volume of misinformation. It's just that people who want to seek it out are able to get it. And in the course of seeking it out, other people are exposed to it, right? So it's this combination of, of people consuming news on social media. And then the other factor, by the way, is just kind of a... I want to be really careful how I say this, but we, we kind of have measures uh, in our surveys to recover how anti-intellectual people are. And I don't mean dumb. I don't mean stupid. I don't mean unintelligent. None of those things. I just mean the degree to which they kind of don't believe expert opinion, don't believe what elites tell them. Okay. So we could call it anything else, but that's, that's how I'm describing it. That's how we, that's how we label it. And that's correlated with misinformation about COVID. And look, if you, if you spend all your day thinking that Pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies are bad and corporations are bad. Maybe it's pretty easy to believe that this thing's been engineered to create a vaccine market or something, right? So, so social media plays an important, an important role in that. Peter, you, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you have some work that you've done with Taylor Owen at McGill uh, in conjunction with PPF uh, in our Digital Democracy Project that was going to be uh, released at a conference on, uh, I can't remember if it was March 30th or March 31st. All I remember is that it didn't. No one was there. <laughs> showed up, but it was it didn't happen, yeah. but, but, that, uh, yeah. but that analysis will, will be coming up uh, in the next little while, won't it? It will be. And you know, there's a really important finding. That was, that was such a fun project to do. And one of the most important findings out of it for us, and one of the most interesting ones was that the more people consume news in Canada, the more likely they were to have correct facts about policy issues in Canada in the last election, but also the more likely they were to have incorrect beliefs. You know, what news was doing was moving them from saying, I don't know, to saying, I know when I'm correct, or I know when it turns out I'm, I'm incorrect. So, and, and that's particularly accelerated by people who get their news on social media. So I think there's a lot of that going on right now, right? I mean, if you have, if you have reason to believe that COVID was engineered in a lab and released either intentionally or by accident, boy, you can confirm that. Like you can, you can Google it and you can find a story that's going to tell you that that's true. If you want to believe that Bill Gates seeded this thing, you can find a story that's going to tell you that it's true. Neither of those things are true, but social media makes it, and, and just digital news actually, just makes it for you to find information that confirms things that just aren't true. Katie. 
I think we have time for one more. Shifting a little bit, to what extent do you think citizens' relationship with their government here in Canada particularly will shift based on, essentially based on the the way that the government has been able to essentially put out money into people's pockets in a way that they never have before? I think it's really good for people to know the government can be a backstop. And we have a, we have an amazing, like I, I happen to think we have an amazing economic system, actually. It's got problems, but it's never in the history of humanity have we had economic systems with so much dynamism, so much potential to create wealth for so many people. And look, life has actually never been better. And those things are related to one another, but we forget that underlying that is a set is, is, is our governments that set up rules that give a certainty framework for, for things to happen and for transactions to continue to occur. And they provide a backstop at the end. And I think citizens now are being reminded that government is there for that, is, is there for that, for that backstop. And, you know, God bless them in this country, conservative politicians led by, and, and thinkers led by our friend Ken Busenkul, you know, are, are making the argument that this is the conservative role government should be playing as well. If the economy is melting down, and, and you can backstop it. That's the best thing you can do to preserve an economy and communities, and that's a conservative approach. Liberals have other justifications for doing it. All of them seem on their face to be very good to me. So I think that this will hopefully remind people the government's there, at least as a, as a backstop. The thing I think that's going to do, though, as well, is it's going to remind people just how much meaning there is in work, how much meaning in community there is in getting out there and going to a job and being with your coworkers. And you know, not every day at the office is a great day, but the way we've set up our economies, actually, you know, where we, where we work for our money and where we, where we have common purpose with other people, I get a lot of meaning from that. And I think, I think a lot of other people will, and people are going to be reminded of the importance of work, actually, when we get back to this. So there'll be a whole bunch of kind of fundamental values, I think, that are just being, are just being um, people are being reminded of through this whole thing, the value of community the value of family, the, the, the value of work, and the value of government. You know, I was going to add something in here, but I found that so inspiring and encouraging that I think I will uh, uh, stay away from it. Well, maybe I should just say, since I said it, that I, you know, I, I think that was beautifully, uh, beautifully said. I wonder, government rose to an occasion by doing policy in real time in a way that governments are not designed to do it. Uh, government's meant to be a somewhat slow beast because it has to be very careful to balance off all kinds of interests and make sure they're spending the taxpayers' money wisely. And here they rose to the occasion, which has really been quite extraordinary. Unwinding it, I wonder how easy that will be if expectations and entitlements uh, will come to be built in. And not necessarily that everything should be unwound. Maybe we will have learned certain things here about our income security system, about about other pieces. But nonetheless, uh, I think it will be harder on the, on the backside than in some ways than it might have been as hard as it was on the front side. Yeah. I think that's Look, right. Peter, I want to thank you so much for an extraordinarily illuminating conversation today. So thank you for joining us, and we'll look forward to keep uh, following your work. Well, thanks for having me on very much, Ed. Okay. And I also want to thank you, Katie, for, uh, for taking charge of the questions and, uh, and to the audience as well for your participation. That is a wrap uh, on this edition of our podcast. I also want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum and our distribution partner, National News Watch. And I want to take the opportunity on each episode to highlight 
one or two of our members at PPF and partners who we see going above and beyond the call of duty during this crisis. We're very fortunate at the Public Policy Forum to have a broad membership. It ranges from governments across the country to the private sector, to post-secondary institutions, trade unions, associations, indigenous groups, you name it. And so today I just want to give a special shout out to two of them. Manulife for its free Stronger Minds by Beacon digital program, which provides easy to digest resources to help Canadians maintain their mental and emotional well-being through the challenges raised by the COVID-19 crisis. And as well to Suncor, which has contributed $3 million to support Canadians in these tough times and also donated 40,000 N95 masks and distributed them on behalf of the federal government to communities in critical need. So as has been said, we're all in this together, and I'm glad to see us all doing our part. Until next time, I'm Edward Greenspawn, and this has been Policy Speaking. <music>